Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 13. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. The word of the Lord. If uh, you have been stuck in a bedroom without any access to electrical devices, you may not realize that the Christmas season has begun, but it has begun. Thanksgiving was months ago at this point. And so whether it's the music on particular radio stations or in your home, depending on who's in your family, the decor, any business you go into is Christmas decorated and the Evites that start arriving. On top of that, I'm guessing for many of you, you're already experiencing the stress and anxiety of Christmas. So a lot of that stress and anxiety comes from social and family expectations. This is the way Christmas is supposed to be. And a lot of those expectations are built, especially if you have kids or family, around gifts. Gifts are a very stressful thing, but don't worry. The industries of America have made sure to give you many days to come up with gifts. Black Friday started, I'm thinking, decades ago, right? Cyber Monday, sometime after the internet was invented, a couple years ago, Small Business Saturday was started so that you have multiple days, and I think this year, American Express credit card companies has joined together with Visa and MasterCard, and they're starting a cyber credit card enslavement Sunday. So you can go ahead and just get deeply in, and they're very happy to help you in that process. A pastor friend of mine was talking with us a few weeks ago when we had this lunch together, and he said, how can we be praying for each other during the Christmas season? What are you most stressed about? We all share different things, but he shared that gifts are his most stressful thing. And the reason is, he and his wife come from opposite opinions about gifts. His wife says, yeah, I'll buy a gift for the kids. That's fine. And she's done with it. He, on the other hand, stresses the gifts. He wants them to be life-changing for his kids. He wants his kids to have such love and devotion for him because of the gifts that he buys that it is eternal. Whatever he gets must change them forever. And he feels the weight and stress of it. Many of us feel that, the weight and stress of making Christmas happen. It falls on you to make it happen. Except we need a little perspective. Christmas already happened. Gift was already given. There is freedom and rest, even in a stressful season, when you can orient yourself around that perspective, around the perspective of the one who came, who was the gift. In our story today in Luke chapter 13, it's not a Christmas story by any means, 
But it is one where Jesus, in an act of healing a woman on the Sabbath, challenges us, as he challenged the people who were there that day, to find our freedom and our rest in him, regardless of what's happening in life. Let's look at the passage. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus enters a synagogue on the Sabbath day and begins teaching. A woman enters who is bent over with a sickness, spiritually, physically, and he heals her. He heals her, but the problem is it's on the Sabbath, right? The day when you're not supposed to work. So the religious leader, the ruler of the synagogue, in verse 14 says, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. Jesus, don't heal people on the Sabbath. That's work. Now, in order to understand the importance of this, you have to go back to the original story of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the day of rest, Saturday in the ancient Jewish culture and modern Jewish culture, was built out of what happened in Genesis chapter two. In Genesis two, we read this, Genesis two, verses two and three. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set apart from the other days because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Later on, when God establishes the people of Israel in the story of Exodus, we get the establishment of the Sabbath as a standard for Israel that would set them apart from the other nations. In Exodus 31, there's a declaration that Israel was supposed to cease from all work, not just them, but their animals, their servants, anybody in their community were supposed to stop working because on the seventh day, the Lord rested. Now by Jesus' day, there were, there were written instructions on how you could celebrate the Sabbath and things you could and could not do. There's a famous first or second century document that lists the 39 activities prohibited on the Sabbath. And these included things like winnowing, So no winnowing on the Sabbath. It also included no reaping. Now, in order to not reap, that meant you actually couldn't climb a tree because you might accidentally break a branch, which would be reaping. You also couldn't ride a donkey, not just because it was working the donkey, but because you might grab a branch, a switch, in order to get the donkey moving, and you would have reaped from that tree. You couldn't build on the Sabbath. There's no building on the Sabbath according to the 39 activities prohibited on the Sabbath. And this meant you can't build a house or a shack or a tent on the Sabbath. And by extrapolation, you can't open or close an umbrella on the Sabbath. So if you know it's gonna rain tomorrow, you just have to open your umbrella. Once the umbrella is open, you can use it. You just can't open or close it on the Sabbath the silliness of what happens when you take a law and you boil it down and break it down into more and more finite minutia of the exact things you can and can't do. Now, of course, we all do this. We all do this, and it starts when you're a kid. If you ever watch kids who are free to go play games, they don't just play tag. They play making up rules about the game of tag. A group of boys who go out to play touch football aren't just playing touch football. 
They're exacting rules about the number of seconds before you can charge the quarterback. And if you cross too soon or count Mississippi too quickly, you've broken all the rules. And inevitably, the game is played, but rules are being created constantly with new rules always being brought up. You tell a small kid something like, hey, no more, no more screen time today. And some kids in a family become the policemen for all other screen time for the rest of their life. No, 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 mom said you cannot turn on the TV. No, no, no iPads. I mean, a couple days ago, she had said no more screen time today. And quickly a kid turns it into a set of laws that were never, ever set forth. A natural tendency. Unfortunately, it's caught into much of what has happened in the church through the centuries. There have been numerous renewal movements within the church where God, the Spirit of God, is moving in amazing and powerful ways. But within a generation or two, that movement and power of God working becomes a series of religious markers to define who's in and who's out. The first and second great awakenings were revivalist movements where people who had grown up in the faith but had a deadened faith were coming to faith in Christ. Years later, even to today, the marker is if you have not prayed a certain prayer to accept Jesus into your life, if the prayer hasn't been uttered, you can't really be a true Christian. Pentecostal movement started in the 1900s with a powerful movement of the spirit. It was renewed by the charismatic renewal movement in the 70s and mainline denominations. And it really was a working and continues to be a working of the spirit of God. And yet, people take it a step further and say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not a true Christian. I mean, you might be, but you're not really there. In the evangelical movement, which started in the 40s as a push against fundamentalism, it was a more intellectual version of Christianity that had not bought into the cultural alignment that the, uh, the, the mainline church had. The evangelical movement started with a turn to intellectual thought, to reading the Bible. And so what ended up happening is in many circles, your definition of how faithful you were depended on how worn out your Bible was. Got like a B, B plus going on right here. Or today, marked by who did you vote for in the election. That'll tell me whether you're in or out. We're constantly trying to make rules, add layers, define who's in and who's out. Christians today, many of us are known by those outside of the church more for what we are against than who and what we are for. It would be a really challenging thing to ask your coworkers, your neighbors, and the extended family you just saw the past couple of days to define your Christianity or to understand Christianity through you and me. Would they think Christianity is defined by a bunch of rules, the things that you're against, and all the church activity that you're involved in? Or would they look at you and say, oh, I understand Christianity. There's a deep joy, an amazing peace, such absolute love and grace. And they seem to be just devoted to this Jesus guy. Wrestle with what Jesus was pushing against on this day, the difference between religion and the gospel. Now, religion is the natural state of all human beings, even if you are totally secular and irreligious, because basically religion is this. 
It's relating to God or whatever you think of as God by being good. You must perform, you must measure up in order to be accepted. In order to know that you matter, you have to achieve some certain level of measuring up. And depending on the circles that you run in, it might be living by a a certain type of lifestyle, a certain moral standard that you have to live by in order to measure up, or certain cultural markers and attitudes you must have to the world around you. You do and act and think these things, and then you know that you're in. You're doing okay. When you have a religious perspective, you're constantly trying to define further down exactly what you must do, because you're always worried to know exactly what you need to do. You want a checklist. You want to know what you need to do to get in and to be okay. Performance is what gets you in. And because we are performance-based people, we're always anxious about how we're actually doing. We're constantly comparing ourselves to one another, and this makes us deeply insecure and often disdainfully superior towards others. Take a religious moral traditionalist. There's a tendency to be superior to the immoral and the irreligious. We're in because we follow these rules. They're out because they don't. Now, you would think that the secular progressives would be the opposite of that, but actually they follow the same set of rules as well. Now, a secular progressive in modern America would say, everybody's in except moral traditionalists. Those self-righteous, smug, superior people will never get in. They're out. Even the secular are self-righteous about the self-righteous. We all have a tendency to define who's in, who's out, and feel superior and insecure constantly. The gospel flips it upside down. The gospel says, Hey, you're all out. Everybody's out. But anybody can be in. The key is to realize it and turn to Jesus. The gospel says, I can't measure up, but Jesus did. And I'm fully accepted in Christ. I obey not in order to assure myself. I obey because I love him who loved me first. We as Christians who claim to live by the gospel still struggle to live by the gospel. Theologian Richard Lovelace wrote, only a fraction of Christians apply the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Below the surface, many of us are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. We tend to start each day with our personal security, resting not on the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements. In what do you rest? Where do you find the Sabbath rest that Jesus offers? Let's go back to the start of the Sabbath in Genesis 2 and then some other verses. In Genesis 2, we read, God, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so the question is this, God rests on the seventh day, why? Because he's exhausted? So you get to the end of six days of labor. I mean, if any of you have worked long days, multiple in a row, eventually you just crash, right? Is that what happens? Is Jesus kind of, I mean, God gets to the end of the sixth day and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm done. 
and he just kind of goes comatose for a few days, puts on the TV, has a drink, right? He's, he's done. Is God exhausted? Is he tired? Is he worn out? No, right? It's rather the word finished that gives us the key. God completed what he had done. He rested because he was satisfied. It was satisfied. It was complete. It was good. The job was over. And so he ceased. Nothing more needed to be done. The grass was mowed. The meal was made. The dishes were put away. And he rested. And of course, it pointed ahead to what Jesus said on the cross as he labored on our behalf. That it is finished. It's done. Nothing more needs to be done. It is finished. It means for those of us whose faith is in Christ, Romans 8 becomes our reality. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it is finished. Nothing. Nothing you do or I do. Nothing that can happen to us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is finished. Gospel essentially makes this declaration. If your faith is in Christ, you are as holy and good and loved and accepted as you ever will be in heaven. You are as holy and good now in God's eyes as you ever will be in heaven because it is finished. Keller in his book on the Gospel of Mark said, most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves, to convince God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. Work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. Jesus, on this particular day, is pushing on the religious side and offering the gospel side. He enters the synagogue, he heals on the Sabbath, and he's overturning the performance-based rules of the religious leaders. And he's offering freedom and rest for this woman. And the religious leaders say, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the author of the Sabbath. You know, the original idea of the Sabbath was to reflect God. God rested on the seventh day, so as God rested, you too should rest on the seventh day. But it wasn't just to reflect or be an image bearer of God. It was also to enjoy God, to enjoy God, the creation around you, and the community, your family and friends. On this day, worship the Lord, spend time with your family, enjoy the creation. Simply rest in what God has done and your relationship with God. And when this came about, this was absolutely radical. No other culture had a day of rest. It was radical in the ancient Near Eastern world. People who came to Israel saw something they didn't see in their culture. And it was radical in Greco-Roman society where there was no day of rest, certainly not for slaves or servants or outsiders. But in Israel, there was a day of rest for everyone. Of course, if we actually practiced it today, it would be radical today as well. You can't get away from that, that thing that tethers you all the time to the work that you constantly have to do just to have a day to rest in God and his creation and your community. 
But Jesus goes further than just saying it's about reflecting God or enjoying God. Jesus says, essentially, the Sabbath anticipates heaven. One day, God will restore all things. He will recreate everything and make everything right again. In Luke chapter six, which we didn't actually go into when we were going on Luke chapter six, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and picks some grain on the Sabbath. And then he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, he's saying, I was there when the Sabbath began, and I will be there when the Sabbath finds its culmination in the end. And here's where the Sabbath is going. That rest that you take and the things that are meant to be done are the sorts of things that Isaiah 61 talks about. Feeding the hungry, releasing prisoners, healing the sick, giving hope to the poor. That's the sort of stuff that is Sabbath-y. That's the sort of stuff that is going to be happening one day forever. I'm the true source, Jesus is saying, of restoration and shalom. And in one way of looking at it, everywhere Jesus goes for the couple of years that he's acting on earth, everywhere he goes, he's Sabbathing everything. He's healing. He's setting free. He's giving sight to the blind. He's calming storms. He's taking the chaos and brokenness of the fall and putting it back together as it was meant to be and will one day be forever. So he rebukes the religious leader, arguing from the lesser to the greater. In verse 15 and 16, the Lord answered the religious leader, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham, a daughter of the promises of God, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? is what the Sabbath is about. Feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, healing the sick, releasing the prisoner. Tim Keller writes, why does Jesus become angry with the religious leaders? Because the Sabbath is about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, repairing the broken. To heal is to do exactly what the Sabbath is all about. Heaven itself is breaking into this woman's life. Healing, restoration, freedom, joy. And all the religious leaders are concerned about is whether you put the water on a coaster on the table. All wrong. It wants to offer a deep rest from all of our performance. But it's found in him and resting in his finished work. Through that, he wants to offer us freedom as well. Not just rest, but also freedom. How he offers it to the woman. In verse 11, we read, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now, you can imagine what this is like, right? There's medical terminology for this. There's like a spinal arthritis, a fusion of the spine. Something has probably happened to her where she is severely dis deformed and disabled and most likely given that condition in a lot of pain. 
bent over, hunched over, crippled in extreme pain for a long time. Now, she has a couple things going against her. In that ancient culture, she was a woman who was devalued. And on top of that, her crippling condition, which was obvious to anyone, would have caused people to avoid her. There was a view in performance-based religious cultures like ancient Judaism that if you were sick, it was probably because of something you had done. So what did she do to deserve this? Where had she gone wrong? She walks around in shame, in social ostracism, and in incredible pain for 18 years. And in a day and age when you didn't live to 70 and 80, this is half of her life. She is crippled and alone and in pain. Wants us to step into that with her, to feel her pain. On top of that, there's a spiritual element to it as well. She had a disabling spirit. Satan had bound her. Now, there's, it's not really clear exactly what's going on here. Was she, uh, is Satan, the demonic, something spiritual is affecting her? It's, it's not entirely clear. There's no indication that she was a sinner or she was possessed. But even today, you could say there are spiritual and psychological effects to things in our life. There's a psychological effect of unforgiveness and bitterness and a critical nature that can actually have physical you know, manifestations in your body. Is there something like that going on in her? I don't know that we know for sure, but here's what we see in what's happening in her life. Two of the three key elements of the effects of the fall are being addressed. The fall comes in in that first garden fall and Satan, sin, and death enter in. And death represents everything like sickness, suffering, natural disaster, tragedy, evil. Satan, sin, death, enter in. The effects of the fall are the enemies of Jesus. Jesus in his death and resurrection battles Satan, sin, and death. And here, the confrontation is against Satan, sin, and death. All the effects of the fall are being felt and seen in her bent over body. Her physical condition matches her spiritual and social and psychological state. Her total, her suffering is total. But, we read, Jesus saw her and he called her over. He said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. Jesus sees her and has compassion on her. The woman whom everyone else avoids or ignores, this bent over lowly woman, he sees her. Jesus identifies with the weak and the outcast. You read through the Gospel of Luke and he identifies with the poor, with women who were pushed aside in that culture, with the sick and the sinners who were avoided or despised. Jesus is the one who entered a womb and a feeding trough. And he's the one who identifies with all of us at our lowest state. And then what does he do? He calls her over to him. So she's probably in the back, and he calls her over to him up onto the stage, if you would, because he's teaching in the synagogue. He's in the place of honor, and he calls her, who is an outcast, bent and broken, up onto the stage, 
Just in doing that, he is extending to her incredible dignity and worth. You are worth everyone seeing and acknowledging. You matter because you matter to me. Culture that devalued women and avoided the sick as unclean, he, even in the act of calling her to him, is restoring her socially. He matters to me. She must matter to you. And then he frees her, delivers her, releases her from her prison that she'd been bound in for 18 years. And immediately she is healed. Physically, she's made straight. And this new physical condition now becomes her spiritual and social and emotional state. She is upright, made whole again. This woman spent 18 years bent over, unable to raise her head. I think Jesus wants us, Luke wants us to say, have you ever felt this way? Emotionally or spiritually bent? In your guilt? In fear? In your shame? Or in your suffering? Jesus' action here and the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen assure us that you are not bound by what you've done or what's been done to you. You are not bound by your family of origin or your parents' dysfunction. You are not bound by your fears or your failures or your addictions or your sins. The evils you've experienced and the losses you've endured do not define you. Jesus intends to liberate us, but not just in one way. Jesus wants to liberate us wholly and holistically as he did with the woman. He wants to set us free physically and spiritually and emotionally and socially. The kingdom of God is breaking in one person at a time and it is liberation from all the effects of the fall. If you've never experienced even a hint of this, you begin by inviting Jesus into your life saying, I want what you're offering, Jesus. Bring all your bentness to him. It's to heal you. He wants to reorient your life around him where you can find freedom and shalom and hope and joy. You fully rest in Christ's finished work on the cross, then you can rest fully. Let's pray. Jesus, we spend so much of our days bent over, emotionally, spiritually. We hide it from everyone else because we need to walk around upright. But internally, because of our past, because of our present, because of our fears of the future, we are bent. Set us straight. Give us hope to look to you, the source of freedom and rest, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Ooh, I will wait for you to come and.